Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. G.K. Chesterton, who was an English philosopher who lived at the end of the 1800s, into the early 1900s, he once wrote uh, that although John saw many strange things in his vision, talking about the book of Revelation, uh, he saw nothing so terrifying as one of his own commentators. For all the wild things John describes over the course of this book, there is nothing in here that is so terrifying, so unsettling, so nerve-wracking as what some people can do with his words. And that's the case about all kinds of passages over the course of this book. It doesn't take much of a Google search to figure out that, that Chesterton's words were probably even, are probably even more true now than they were when he wrote them. Uh, but his words are maybe most true, most apparent when we come to the passage we're going to be looking at this morning, the first six verses of Revelation chapter 20. This passage causes a lot of consternation, and most, most of it is tied up in the fact that it uses this term of a thousand years. Maybe you've heard it referred to as the millennium. And like we've mentioned about other terms, other ideas that are in this book of Revelation over the course of this series, uh, it's also true about this one, that, that this term of a thousand years, this term of the millennium, it really only appears here in Scripture. And so as students of Scripture, it's usually a good rule of thumb that when something appears that rarely, that we don't make much, too much of it. We don't make more of it than, than Scripture does. But even though that's the case, that has not stopped any number of preachers, teachers, authors, YouTubers to do just that. To use this passage as a jumping-off point to construct all kinds of theories about the future, the end of the world, and whatever else they might think is found in these six verses. And so because that is the case, before we jump into this text this morning, I want to take just a few moments to focus ourselves so that we are, have the right perspective as we enter into this passage that, composed so, that can present so many distractions and so that we can be encouraged before we start making our way through it. The goal of this passage, I'm not hiding anything from you this morning. If you're taking notes, this is all you need to know right up here. Don't fall asleep right after this, but you know, you, you'll get the gist if you just hear this part. The goal of this passage is to show God's people that Jesus' victory is our victory. Jesus' victory is our victory. Remember who this book is written to. It is written to followers of Jesus who are trying to make sense of how to live for him in a world that is growing more and more hostile to them. It is people who are living in a world where the emperor, the ruler over them, is claiming to be God in the flesh, who is claiming to be ruler of the universe, and who is demanding that all people offer sacrifices to him as if he is a god or else. And they, as, as people who believe that it is not the emperor, but it is in fact Jesus who was God in the flesh. It is Jesus who is the resurrected king of the universe. And because they are convicted of that, they will not offer sacrifice. They will not worship the emperor as he, de as he demands. Because they have that conviction, they are facing blowback at, the, at that reality. It's to people like that. It's written to people who can see the fingerprints 
of Satan all over the place as they look around them, as he fights with all of his might against God's people, as he does everything in his power to draw them away from their allegiance to Jesus. The people dealing with that reality, these six verses are not a hunting ground to sniff out theories about how we think the world is going to end. It is a reminder, a reminder that Jesus' victory is our victory. It is a reminder that, that even though it might seem like Satan is winning battles all around them, he has already lost the war. Jesus has been victorious, and he shares that victory with his people. And therefore, we trust in him, knowing that in him we have victory. And I say all of that so that we, myself included, approach this text from a place of humility first and foremost as we desire to hear what this text has to say on its own terms. The goal is right up front. Again, I'm not trying to hide anything. The goal is to preach this text faithfully. I'm not interested in reading this text and then spending a half hour telling you what I think about the future because that would be a waste of your time and mine. What I want to do this morning is preach this text faithfully so that we, living as God's people in the year 2022 in Rochester, Minnesota, might hear how God spoke through this passage to God's people living in the Roman province of Asia Minor at the end of the first century, that we might be able to hear what God said then and be encouraged through that message. So because that's the goal, humility and faithfulness to the text, it is worth saying up front that there are a variety of viewpoints as we make our way through this. There are a variety of viewpoints on how to read this passage. As, as we go along, I'll present to you what I think, what I'm convinced based on my own studies, the best way to, to read uh, this passage. It's best in line with what is said here and what is in line, what it, and is in line with what is said across the rest of Scripture. And yet, I, I, I also say there are plenty of other intelligent Christians who love Jesus and disagree and would see things differently. There are people who I've studied under who would disagree with, with uh, some, some things from this, this morning. And so, it's important to keep in mind that how we read this specific passage is not the barrier for all time of deciding who is and is not a true follower of Jesus. At the end of the day, there are different uh, uh, paths to take to make our way through this passage, and they all end in the same place of Satan being defeated, and with him all evil, sin, deceit, injustice for all time. That is the end. That is the goal. And because that is the end, uh, setting the stage for the new heavens and the new earth that are described in chapters 21 and 22 of this book, we need to keep in mind that that is the big picture. That is where things are headed. What is most important is not figuring out if I'm in the right camp so that then I can throw stones at all the other camps who are obviously wrong and aren't as smart as I am. The goal is to place our hope in the hope that this passage directs towards. The goal is to direct us towards the hope that is available in the resurrection of Jesus. Remember, as we go along this morning, in case you've already forgotten, the whole point of this passage is to show God's people Jesus' victory is our victory. So with that in mind, let's read the first three verses of this passage. John writes, I saw, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. 
he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more till the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. As we've established over the course of this series, we believe that the, that the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature uses figurative language and symbolism to point to deeper truths that are intended to fill God's people with hope. Apocalyptic literature is less lecture and more political cartoon. A, a lecture and a political cartoon can both make the same point to you, but they take very different paths to get to that point. So with that line of thinking, uh, across the book as a whole, but when we come to this passage in particular, we take this passage to be saying that the 1,000 years mentioned in these verses are intended to be figurative. Just like how every other number across the book of Revelation is intended to be read as figurative. And so since that number is figurative, it is being used to refer to a very long period of time where Satan is bound limited in the amount of work he is able to do on the earth. By contrast, if we were to jump back to Revelation chapter 2, to the, the letters that John writes from Jesus to the seven churches this, this book is, is written for, uh, to one of the churches, the church in Smyrna, Jesus tells them that they will endure persecution for ten days. And so again, that's not necessarily a literal number, a literal amount of time, but the believers in Smyrna will endure difficulty, but it is very small compared to what Christ has accomplished in his defeat of Satan, just like how ten days is nothing compared to a thousand years. And during those thousand years, John says, Satan is seized and bound and imprisoned. And this is the point where all the various schools of thought crop up, trying to sort out what is being described here, when it is going to take place, when this period of a thousand years will be carried out, and, and we don't have the time or space to cover every, every single detail around this issue this morning, but it's worth noting that we believe that the best way to read this passage is to say that what John is communicating here is that this thousand years is currently taking place. We are currently living in the period where Satan is bound in what, and limited in what he is able to do. What is being described in these verses is the fact that the operations of our enemy, the operations of Satan, are severely limited in the time after the death and resurrection of Jesus. In chapter 19, in the, the, the passage in between where we were last week and where we're picking up this morning, uh, describes the defeat of the armies of Satan. And it's, those armies are led by his associates that together with Satan form this unholy trinity that oppose God and his people across this book. And, and as they show up, they are defeated, but it's just the associates. Satan himself is not there, which begs the question about where Satan is while all of this is going on. And so here at the beginning of chapter 20, John circles back and gives us this little interlude to tell us the backstory. Here he shows us what has happened to the leader of the forces of evil. Just like how all the rest of his forces are defeated in chapter 19, he too has already been defeated by the power of Jesus. And he is bound and he is imprisoned for an extremely long period of time. And so this passage is using slightly different imagery to tell the same story to us again that John has already told us in chapter 12. 
In Revelation 12, John talks about the defeat of Satan. He says that he was thrown down from heaven to earth. And when he is thrown out of heaven, after he has tried and failed to stop the work of the Son of God, he has been defeated, and he is angry that he has been defeated. And in his anger, he attempts to destroy God's people who are on the earth because he's no longer able to wage war against God himself because of what the Son of God has accomplished. He's lost the war, but he's still desperately trying to win as many battles as he can while he is on his road to destruction. And the same thing's being described here in chapter 20. Satan is bound, still angry, still trying to do whatever he can to advance his agenda as far as is possible, but limited in what he's able to accomplish and on the path that leads to destruction, no matter how you look at it. And that is the main goal through all of this. No matter how you slice it, no matter how you read this passage, the end goal is that Satan is defeated. And you can even sense how badly John wants us to get that point by how much time he spends on it describing who this person is that is bound and seized and thrown into the abyss. He says the angel seized the dragon, this figure that has waged war against God's people across this entire book. He seizes that ancient serpent, that one who first deceived Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that led to the break of God's good creation in Genesis chapter 3. He seizes that one who is known as the devil, a word that literally means slanderer, that one who stands before God accusing us of our sin and our our wrongdoing, the one who comes to tell us we've done too much, we've gone too far, we're past the realms of the love and the grace of God. He seizes Satan, a term that literally means adversary, means enemy, the enemy of God's people that one who has been opposed to God and his people, and he takes that one, he binds him up, he throws him in prison because his work has been stopped, because he's been defeated. And if we're honest, it would be really nice if at this point the passage ended, because we get that pesky little comment at the end of verse 3. After this period, he must be released for a short time. And again, it's important that we don't make a bigger deal out of it then Scripture makes it. Because instead of spinning ourselves in circles trying to construct theories about this one little sentence, we can zoom out just a hair and see what this release is for. We can look down to the very next passage and see that when Satan is released for this very short period of time, it is for the sake of his complete destruction. It's not Satan being granted parole. It's not Satan having a really long time to dig a tunnel out of this prison that he's found himself in. He is released under the power and the authority of God so that he and with him all evil, all deceit, all injustice, all sin for all time can be fully dealt with once and for all. That is where all of this is headed. Not a roadmap to the future, not a predictions about the end of the world. The point of all of this, to drive the point home, Jesus is victorious. Jesus has conquered evil, and therefore, because Jesus has victory, we too can have victory. Jesus' victory is our victory. Because that great enemy of God's people, the dragon, has been defeated, we can be confident that at the end of the day, God's people will be victorious. And that's driven home again in the second half of this passage, verses 4 to 6. Says, I saw thron- John writes, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, and here's our blessing. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Like I've already said this morning, the goal of all of this is to comfort God's people in the midst of their suffering. To people who are facing the prospect of losing their livelihoods or maybe even losing their life because they belong to Jesus, this passage reassures them that they will be victorious. And therefore, they can and they should remain faithful to the message of Jesus in spite of opposition. Beheading, which is described there in those verses, was how the Roman Empire carried out capital punishment on its citizens. Church tradition tells us that this is how the Apostle Paul was put to death. It was a shameful way to die. It involved being beaten, blindfolded, forced to kneel down while a Roman soldier beheaded you with a sword. And to the Roman Empire, this was done as a statement to its citizens. A statement saying, this is what happens when you mess with us. This is what happens when you get out of line. This is how we show our dominance, our power, our glory. And to the average person seeing it take place, it would be seen as incredibly shameful for the person experiencing it and for their entire family, their entire community. But in the eyes of heaven, based on what John says here, there is absolutely nothing shameful about it. While a watching world would look at someone being willing to go to death for the cause of Jesus as a huge waste, a huge uh, tragedy, uh, falling short of their potential, the lens of heaven tells us it is the most honorable thing a person could do. Those who died in shame here in these verses are vindicated in honor in the eyes of heaven. Those who were forced to kneel, forced down to die in the way that was the lowest of the low, these verses say they will be lifted up to the highest of highs by God himself. Their death was not in vain. Their life was not a waste. Even if that vindication will not be made visible until the redemption of all things at the return of Jesus. Those who have been judged, those who have been oppressed, those who have been shamed in the eyes of the world are brought to life and are the ones judging, ruling, and honored in the eyes of God. And if that is the case for those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice, if that is the case for those who have given up their lives for the cause of Christ, then surely that means all people can endure whatever might come their way because of our allegiance to Jesus. Surely that means that we too, even if we don't see it in this life, will be vindicated through the victory that has been won by Jesus. And we can be confident that that pattern will be followed because that is the pattern Christ follows as he dies on the cross in shame, as he is vindicated at the resurrection three days later. It is a path that from an earthly perspective looks like it ends at the grave, looks like it ends with complete destruction, looks like it ends with shame and dishonor. But when viewed from the perspective of heaven, it is the only path that leads to true life. And that true life is enjoyed in part in the time John describes in these verses as a foretaste of the resurrected life that is to be enjoyed by all people in the future, or by all God's people in the future, excuse me. The period being spoken about here is not the new heavens and the new earth where all things are restored. That will come in the next few chapters. What is being talked about here 
is that intermediate state that we see in other places in Scripture as a place enjoyed by God's people between the first and second coming of Christ. It is life after death, but we might say, as the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has said, we're not just looking forward to life after death. We're looking forward to life after life after death, which is sometimes confusing to say, but is worth emphasizing. As this passage says, it is describing the first resurrection, which ensures God's people are delivered from the second death. We're told here about a first resurrection and a second death, and the implication with both of those seems to be that if there is a first resurrection, there's also a second resurrection. If there is a second death, there must also be a first death. And for God's people, this first death everyone goes through is the gateway into the first resurrection, which is a foretaste of the second resurrection to come, a resurrection which means eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth for God's people and means judgment and destruction for those who have rejected God and his purposes. And all of that getting down in the weeds should bring us back to what has been the main point this entire morning. Jesus' victory is our victory. Because Christ is resurrected and reigning over all things, we have hope that we too, as God's people, will one day also be resurrected to reign over all things alongside him. The hope of res- that hope of resurrection gives us confidence as we live in a broken world in the present. It reminds us that death has no power over God's people. Jesus has defeated death. He has made it possible for us to share in his resurrection, and therefore we do not give up hope. We hold on to him. We hold on to him even when it means pain, even when it means suffering, even when it means shame in this life because we have a confidence in the victory of our King. We have a confidence that our King will one day return and make all things new. And in the meantime, He has promised us that He will lift us up to honor. And honor from King Jesus trumps anything else that might ever be thrown our way in the present. Regardless of how we split the hairs of this passage, that is where we land at the end of the day. John is not writing to 21st century Americans speculating about how the world is going to end. John's not writing to give fodder for TV preachers who want to sell books about their predictions of the future. He is writing to brothers and sisters in Christ that he knows personally who are struggling to make sense of how to follow Jesus in a world that is opposed to them. And as he meets them in that suffering, he offers them the hope that comes from the victory of Jesus to remind them and to remind us that we share in that victory. This text meets God's people in their suffering. It meets us in our suffering and calls us to reorient ourselves towards the hope of Jesus. And when we come to this text from that perspective, it changes our priorities. From, uh, it changes our priorities from theories about the future, and it, it calls us to focus on the hope that will sustain us no matter our circumstances. This text is for people like a mother living in a country where it is illegal to be a follower of Jesus who has just watched her son be put to death because he was preaching the gospel. And to that mother, this text is a reminder that Satan might rear his ugly head at times, but he is bound, the clock is running out, and one day he will be destroyed and her son will be resurrected and vindicated. This text is written to people 
like a young woman who wants to follow Jesus but knows that saying yes to Jesus will mean being cut off from her entire family. And to someone like that, this text reminds us that God is in control. That even though from our perspective it might not seem the case, even though his people might be put to shame in the present for remaining faithful to him, they will one day be vindicated. They will one day reign as a part of his people in glory. This text is written to people like a high school student who, who knows that, that remaining faithful to Jesus, that holding a biblical worldview on so many issues in our world today will, will cause issues, will, will cause them to run up against uh, shame and, and being mocked and maybe even having the risk of losing relationships or losing potential career opportunities. And that student is reminded from this text that they can be confident that hanging on to Jesus is worth it because it leads to life with our good and loving King who conquers all things. And that is our hope. This text is written to people like a husband standing at their wife's casket, wondering if God has forgotten about them. And to that husband, this text reminds us that God's people are blessed even in the face of death, because we have the hope of the resurrection. The grave is not the end of the story. The end of the story is life with our God. No matter who we are, the message of this text is that Jesus' victory is our victory. Jesus is alive, and therefore we do not give up. We hold on to him even in the face of suffering, even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of shame, even in the face of whatever might come our way, because we know this life is not the end of the story for God's people. And so, as we respond to this text, this going out from here, the truth for us to remember is Jesus' victory is our victory. Jesus' victory is our victory, so live like it. God's people have the hope of eternal life, and that hope invades every part of our existence. And if this is what we believe, may we live like it so that the world around us may know we believe it as well. A friend of mine recently got the news that his grandpa had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And typically, as, as you might expect, receiving news like that is hard and is met with, with questions and, and frustration, despair, sadness, whatever other emotions you might uh, put in there. That was not how this went for my friend. My friend sat at the kitchen table across from his grandpa, and his grandpa looked him in the eye and said, I want to show you how to live in the face of death. I want to show you how a Christian man dies. And that sort of perspective, that sort of hope is only possible in someone who has deeply internalized the hope of the gospel, has deeply internalized the truth that is on the screen right now, that Jesus' victory is our victory. It is a sort of hope, a sort of perspective that I want for myself, and I hope you do as well. That's just one example of what it looks like to live the truth, that Jesus' victory is our victory, and that truth can play out in all sorts of ways amongst every single one of us, no matter where we go forth from here, and it is the sort of of hope that the message of Jesus has to offer our world, has to offer us, has to offer every person we come into contact with. And so, may we live as people who are grounded in the hope of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' victory is our victory. So may we live like it in the present 
as we look forward to it being fulfilled completely in the future. Let's pray. God, you are good to us. We thank you that Christ is alive and reigning at your right hand. We ask that you would be with us as we live as your people in the meantime. As we live in a world that is broken, a world that involves pain and suffering and involves opposition, involves the enemy at work, Father, orient our, our hope, our perspective, orient everything that we are in our being on the fact that Christ is alive and therefore we will be resurrected as well. Help us build everything that we are on the firm foundation that, that Christ has conquered and therefore we can share in that victory. Father, we trust in your presence with us. We trust that your spirit will help us as we respond to that truth. As we live as your people, Father, remind us of your hope. Give us wisdom for how to apply this reality. Wherever we go, may we be reminded of your presence and filled with your hope. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.